Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Ian McLaughlin, Peter Johnson, John Farthing. I'm Hazel Burton. Welcome back, Ian. Yay! Yay. Delighted to have you back. And I'm pleased all the charges were dropped. (laughs) All except one. (laughs) On today's show, we're going to talk about some new recommendations, things we've been doing recently and watching. In The Born Identity, it's my turn to talk about a movie for my birth year, so I'm going to talk about Rocky Four. And we're going to start the show with our film buff or film bluff quiz. Film buff or film bluff quiz time. So what happens here is we've all got three pieces of entertainment trivia. Entertainment is not a word. It is now. <laughs> It's enter- it's entertainment aimed specifically at you. It's entertain me ant. It's what I said when I went to see Ant Man and the Wasp. I was like, entertain me ant. <laughs> very, I'm very, very demanding yes. for the box office. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, three pieces of trivia. One of them is completely made up. So we've got to work out which one is the bluff. Ian, let's have your film bluff or film bluff questions first. Okay, here they go. Here's my film buffs or film bluffs. Uh, number one. The code you see piddling down the screen in green in The Matrix is actually a sushi recipe. Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, one of the famous scenes in Pulp Fiction was filmed backwards. The whole film was filmed backwards. Yeah. Took yeah. them a surprisingly long time. <laughs> Films aren't filmed forwards anyway. They're all out of order. No, they did things in reverse and then forwarded them. Oh, I see. Reversed it, so they became forward. Makes complete sense. Thank you. <laughs> and, and finally, the script for E.T., and Close Encounters of the Third Kind with the same script at some point. Okay, well, I know that the last one is kind of true. It's based on Watch the Skies. There was, there was, yeah. I'm pretty sure they were developed as the same script at one and point. And the sequel to E.T. kind of split off and became Close Encounters and Poltergeist. There was a sequel. There was a sequel script called E.T. 2 Night Terrors. Oh, hang on. So which two movies did Ian say? E.T. And, and Close Encounters. Close Encounters. Encounters. It's terrible. So E.T. 2, Night Terrors, evil aliens were going to come down, kidnap Elliot and terrorise him. And then at the end, the original E.T. from the first film was going to come and save Elliot and his friends from the nasty aliens. That's the bluff. N- no, that's true. And that became Poltergeist. At what point do I admit I'd never seen E.T.? Is it now? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I knew there was a reason I wasn't coming to these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Amish? Um, practically, I was raised in Lincolnshire. Yeah. So, uh, no, my, I said that the scripts for E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind yeah. were the same script at some point. So is it a trick and the actual answer is E.T. and Poltergeist? The second one's definitely true. I think the scene you're talking about is the one where Uma Thurman gets an adrenaline shot to the heart. And I think they did that in reverse. They pull the syringe out, yeah, and then reversed it. And the first one was The Matrix uh, data stuff down the screen is actually a sushi recipe. I, I That's think bollocks, it's something else. It? It's, it's something, but I don't think it's a sushi recipe. Sushi recipes are just a bit of ice, a bit of seaweed, a bit of fish. Yeah, but when you see it written in Chinese, it roll looks, it, it looks roll different. It, roll it, it up. Welcome to Cooking with John. I've <laughs> <laughs> made some sushi for you all later. Okay, so which is it? Is it, is it the Matrix titles? 
Is it mm. the backward scene in Pulp Fiction or is it E.T.? and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So is the reason for the second one being reversed so they can make it appear that, like they're really violently stabbing her yeah. in the chest? Yeah. yeah. And that would be a sensible reason to reverse that yeah. scene. Watch the Skies. Was that not Spielberg's first film? It's so certainly a very, very early film that he did. Would that have been a similar thing that inspired Taken when he did that on TV? Not Liam Neeson Taken, but the one with Dakota Fanning in, with Aliens. Listen, you goddamn alien. I have a particular set of skills. I'm going um, to find you. I'm going to go for the Watch the Skies not being... It's kind of right, but not exactly right. Yeah, I'm thinking it's Poltergeist and not Close Encounters mm. for that one. But if Ian's just, as we saw him do, quickly look something up on a website five minutes ago, <laughs> having forgot to do the film before film bluff... It may be a website that's not the most accurate. So it's kind of right, but only a a real sad nerd. For a lawyer, you have a fairly flexible idea of what's right. (laughs) (laughs) Depends how much you pay me. (laughs) What are we going for? I'm going sushi. So you think the sushi is the bluff? E.T. E.T. You think the E.T. is the bluff? And John? Sushi. You think sushi is the bluff? Mm -hmm. The bluff is... E.T. John was right. The original script was E.T. and Poltergeist were the Mm. same script. And then they kind of segued apart from each other. The Matrix titles are, in fact, a sushi cookbook that the title maker did some scans of to turn into the data stuff. And yes, What, did it translate as bit of rice, bit of fish? (laughs) It did, yeah. (laughs) Bit of ice, bit of fish, I think it was. And And um, what do they use when they show it in China? Do they not all say, why is there a yeah, why sushi is, recipe? Yeah. Why is this saying bit it's of a, fish? It's a, it's a fish and chip recipe. Is it the deep meaning? <laughs> and yes, it was the Uma Thurman um, heart thing scene had to be done. They originally actually made a retractable needle, but it didn't retract the first time they used it and oh. actually pierced her chest a little bit. Oh my goodness. My film buff or film bluff this episode is about Firefly and Serenity. Ooh. Uh, because this summer, my uh, partner and I have been re-watching it all. I've been rewatching it. She's been watching it for the first time. And we've recently started rewatching it again a couple of months later because it's just so awesome. True that. My favourite birthday present this year was the big Firefly A Celebration book, which has all the scripts is in this it. Is part of your bluff? No, this is it's just the introduction. Favorite. This is the preamble. <laughs> no, uh, it is. Uh, these are my three before bluffs, but Firefly is awesome. This is why I've chosen it. Number one, Neil Patrick Harris, a.k.a. Joss Whedon's Dr. Horrible, auditioned for the role of Dr. Simon Tam. Number two, the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars can be seen in the background in the pilot episode. And number three, Firefly and its movie follow-up Serenity can now be watched in space. The third one's true. I think so, yeah. Yeah, And I'm pretty sure the second one's true. I'm pretty sure, because I only recently caught up with Firefly, and I'm I'm pretty sure I laughed out loud when I saw the Millennium Falcon. Wasn't it the Aliens ship that you saw? Well, it does have the the Uh, Whaling-Yutani. Whaling-Yutani was on one of the the plasma cannons that were shooting people. When you say, can be watched in space? From the International Space Station. From the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. If you happen to be in space, you would have the ability to watch the show. Before you died. From lack of oxygen and... <laughs> but of course, if you travel so far out into space, you know, the, the, the broadcasts we make travel out. Yeah. And so at the, on the end of the uh, solar system now, you can kind of watch like the assassination of Kennedy still happening. So that could be well be true. Science with Ian McLaughlin. Mm, thank you. <laughs> but yes, presume I'm talking about the space station. You would actually have to travel faster than the light to get there in time to see it. You would do, yes. Do they not have Netflix on the International Space Station? Have they got Wi-Fi there? <laughs> 
Well, they talk to people at home, don't they? But it was built in the 70s. The police still got Betamax. Wonder they watch Gravity up there. Oh, no, nobody oh. would because it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Oscar you. winning Gravity there. Oh, so, no, we were talking about this yesterday. It's really, really an appalling film. <laughs> it, it had one of the best lines of the Emmys, I think. Um, and the, the joke they had was Gravity is a film about George Clooney wanting to drift off into space rather than spend any time with a woman his own age. <laughs> it's got no atmosphere that film sorry Dan what's the first oh. one again the first that's, one that's like a lot of Sandra to me <laughs> the first one was Neil Patrick Harris aka Joss Whedon's Dr Horrible auditioned for the role of Dr Simon Tam I can believe that but I know two and three are right so I'm just going to go for one via default I'm going to go with B the uh, Millennium Falcon because I think I've seen it but I think it might be a false memory I know. Yeah, okay. It was definitely Waylon Utani mm. symbol was there, but I'm... I'm going with B as well. There's something in there, but I've, yeah, I think, like Ian, I've got a false memory, so I'm going to go with B as well. You are all apart from John correct. <laughs> oh. So Hazel, having finally learned not to pick the <laughs> yes. one John picks. Yeah, there, there's no Millennium Falcon, but you do see an Imperial shuttle in the background when Inara's shuttle docks with Serenity, and there's a mini replica of Han in Carbonite hidden in several scenes. Because the props makers were massive Star Wars fans. Neil Patrick Harris did audition for Simon, and Zac Afron made his debut playing a young Simon in one episode. And it can be watched on the space station. So an astronaut called Stephen Ray was a big fan of both the show and the film, and took copies to the ISS in 2007, and they're now part of the permanent space station collection. So you can't stop the signal. <laughs> Very good. John, are you, uh, are you ready? I have for you three Batman stories from the Batman comic books. True. <laughs> Correct. Two of these are genuine Batman comic stories would I have just made up. Story number one. Upon losing his millions, Batman has to go on the TV show Jeopardy in order to win enough money to repair his Batmobile. At the end, when he gets the question right, host Alex Trebek reveals himself as the Joker and it was an evil plan to imprison him <laughs> in a studio. Okay. <laughs> Story number two, Baby Batman. Batman undergoes a horrible accident which leaves him as a baby in diapers, but still with the uh, power <laughs> still with the power of the adult Batman. <laughs> as part of this storyline, Batman says to Robin, Robin, I never thought there'd be a time when you'd have to carry me in your arms like a baby. <laughs> Story number three. Rainbow Batman. Rainbow Batman. Robin injures his arm, and as a result, Dick Grayson also has an arm injury. So Batman is worried that people will recognise... (laughs) 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 That people will realise that Dick Grayson and Robin are the same person because of the arm injury. So Batman distracts them, and he decides the best way to distract them is by wearing a selection of different brightly coloured Batman outfits. <laughs> <laughs> what, like a, a yellow Batman costume? A, a red, red one, a blue one. <laughs> so that they're looking at him and not Robin. And at the end, he combines them all into a big rainbow Batman outfit of all the different colours. And the villains are so distracted by this that they don't notice that Robin has the same arm injury as Dick Grayson. Oh, I love your imagination. Because that's the made-up one. <laughs> Yeah, I think your inability to read it without laughing <laughs> gave it away a little bit. Think, yeah, tears are yeah. streaming down your, your cheeks. 
I thought the second one was bullshit till I heard that one. <laughs> the second one, Baby Batman with Robin, I never thought you would have to carry me in your arms like a baby. So what do we all, all think? <laughs> Rainbow mm. Batman. Rainbow Batman. Rainbow uh, Batman. I think Rainbow Batman is true. What? Oh, no. <laughs> I, ch- I hadn't chosen. <laughs> so I think it's one of the other two. <laughs> what was the first one? Uh, the first one is Batman loses all his millions and has to go on the TV show Jeopardy to attempt to win it back. But then it's revealed at the end that Alex Tribeck, who is the host of Jeopardy, is actually the Joker. And it was a plan to get Batman to reveal all these things he knows by answering all these questions that the Joker wanted the answer to, like, where is the Batcave? Beep! Under Bruce Wayne's manor. I think the fake one is Baby Batman. Uh, no, the fake one is Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Batman. Baby Batman is a real story, wow. as, is, as is Rainbow Batman. Okay, so since I'm talking about Rocky Four later on for The Born Identity, I thought I'd do a film buff or bluff around Rocky, the first one. Number one, though uncredited in the film, Michael Dorn, who plays Worf in Star Trek, made his acting debut as Creed's bodyguard. Number two, a Steadicam was used to um, get that smooth photography whilst he's running and going up the steps. It was actually the first film to use a Steadicam at all. And thirdly, due to the film's low budget, members of Stallone's family played minor roles. So his father rings a bell to signal the start and the end of a round. His brother Frank plays a street corner singer and his first wife, Sasha, was a stills photographer. I can definitely believe the third one. I think they they got audience in for the fight scenes by offering them a chicken dinner in return. Wow. (laughs) I can believe the second one because it won Best Director at the Oscars, did it not? So it must have had some innovative techniques. And um, what, what year was like that? First Rocky was the one with the 70, 70 something. 76. 76 I'm, rings a bell, I'm yeah. pretty sure that Sting was the person who painted, patented the Steadicam. Sting as in? Sting. Sting from mm. the police, yeah. It was, mm. uh, it was developed for one of their videos. I'm Does pretty it sure he he, didn't, they didn't use his version? Um, mm. I'm pretty sure he painted it. Why did I think The Shining was the first film to use Steadicam? I don't know. Why did you think The Shining was the first one to use Steadicam? It may have been the first one to use it to represent POV, maybe. Do you mean Possibly. like on Danny's strike? Yeah. Also, actually, no, because Halloween predates The Shining, doesn't it? So I'm destroying my own argument before I move on to yours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Michael Dorn? I haven't heard that. That forehead would stand out, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. When did Star Trek The Next Generation start? 87. 87. So... It's only about 10 years difference. I think the Steadicam one is wrong. That's my thought on the subject. I'll go with the Stallone family. I'm going to go with the Steadicam as well, just because I don't know where I got the idea of Sting. (laughs) 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 I'm sure he did. He definitely patented something. If if you take it, I'll be watching you steadily. I'm going to go with Steadicam as well. Steadicam is the bluff. It is the third film to use a Steadicam. The first one was Bound for Glory, and the second one was Marathon Man. Mm. The third. Yeah, Michael Dorn uh, doesn't say anything, but you can see him in two key scenes where they're talking about whether to fight Rocky or not. But he'd wear sunglasses, so you can't really see him. Mm. I wouldn't know what he looked like as not a Klingon. Um, Actually, you'll find Michael Dorn without his makeup looks a little bit like a kindly OJ Simpson. (laughs) But less really murdery. Mm-hmm. Well, if you YouTube his scenes in Rocky, the next suggested YouTube clip is all the outtakes from Star Trek. So I had a very fun 10 minutes this morning watching all of those. He's a hoot. Is Michael Dawn? 
he's the one that just wants to be in Star Trek all the time, isn't he? He keeps uh, pitching his Commander Worf series. Could Commander Worf show up in Star Trek Discovery, like Spock's are going to do? No, because Commander Worf wouldn't have been alive during the time of Star Trek Discovery. Stop getting Star Trek wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Having no knowledge of Star Trek, I don't care. You've watched now, have you watched the first two episodes of The Next Generation? Yes, I have. Yeah, and what did you think? They're all right. They're quite good fun. I like Patrick Stewart in it. They seem mm-hmm. like a nice team. It's quite an easy commute watch. I can see myself getting into it more than when I tried the original series, which I found quite hard going. You'll enjoy it more when you get through series two and series three. I think those are, those are the, where it sort of hits it. Yeah. It's but great if, I mean, right. if these are supposedly the less good episodes, mm-hmm. I'm still enjoying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not thinking this isn't very good. Um, so I'm hopeful that for the ones where it gets really good, I'm going to really love it. And finally, Peter. One of these is a bluff. There's some debate on the internet about the similarities between Alex Proyas's Dark City and Matrix, but both movies also share a set. The soundtrack of the movie Seven includes the very 80s song Love Plus One by Haircut 100. And before writing for Marvel, Stan Lee used to have a job writing personalised messages for a greetings card company in New York. The third one I think I've heard before. And about Stanley, I think that one is true. Yeah, I did get a Valentine's card dedicated to True Believers, so I assume that was Stanley. I have not heard of Alex Proyas's Dark City. Oh, it's a good film. It's a great film. I'm sure it is. Have you seen the Buffy episode where um, no one can speak? Yes. Very reminiscent of Dark City. Okay. Um, What set do they share? It's uh, a rooftop set. If I watch the mentions in Dark City, you have but I got all oh, those are quite clearly the same place. Well, to some extent, rooftop sets are mm. you move things around and... Now, I'm tend to say that's true simply because they both filmed in Australia. So that makes me think that there might be something to that, that they would share sets, because as we all know, Australia's a barren cultural wasteland of only... <laughs> Hello to all our Australian <laughs> listeners. How are you going? They are going one by one, turning off the podcast. <laughs> So I think that's right. And the second one was... We are drinking Fosters, though, as some sort of tribute. We, we are drink. Well, some of us are drinking Fosters. I'm drinking Bavarian Dutch beer. Oh. What have you got against Australia? I was trying to save us. Um, nothing. It's just... If you were going to nuke one continent... Right. I've been to Australia <laughs> and it's brilliant. You know, you'd miss it. Like, if Africa went, you go, oh, I'm missing a lot of stuff there. And, you know, if Australia goes, it's, it's a shame. It's nice. <laughs> But it's not a Roland Emmerich movie. A bit, a bit of coral reef, yeah, that's fine. Don't need that. It's not there anymore. Keep digging that hole. We've got enough episodes of Neighbours to put them on repeat. But what would the world do without, you know, Chris Hensworth's hometown? Oh, I, would, I, would make I sure knew that... we'd get to that <laughs> signal later. I would make sure that Chris Hensworth and Margot Robbie were safe. Mm. Actually, if he doesn't have to go back to Australia, then he can live here with me. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> thought he already did, or did he escape again? <laughs> yeah, I've had to replace the keys for the boot. Oh, I'm sorry, 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 sorry to hear that. Nord <laughs> <laughs> for his own ankles would get the chain off. I don't need his ankles. <laughs> <laughs> Can only walk in circles now. <laughs> um, and anyway, the second yeah, one's a blessing. Uh, seven, the uh, soundtrack. Yes, the, the soundtrack for the movie Seven includes Love Plus One by Haircut 100. It, Could you sing that for us? No. Seven's not a film with a recognisable soundtrack apart from Nine Inch Nails' song at the beginning. Um, 
There's a Bowie song on there somewhere mm. as well, isn't there, over the end credits? Yeah. Um, I think that might be a lie. I'm, I'm going to go for Haircut 100 not being in seven. Me too. Me three. <laughs> Me four. You're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, it's true that Dark City and The Matrix share a set because they were both filmed in Fox, Australia, and they were filmed about a year apart. Um, the soundtrack of the movie Seven does include that song. But Where? M- Marvel, uh, they hear it in a cafe in the background. Oh, okay. I watched Seven again after we talked about it on the last podcast. Oh, uh, yeah. It was just such a weird song to hear in the middle of that movie because <laughs> all the rest of the music's all oppressive and this is a la da 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 very sort of happy 80s pop song. It's gone right over my head. I've seen Seven about 20 times. The one that's made up is about Stanley writing personalised messages for a greetings card company. He never did that. Oh. Did Jack Kirby or someone else at Marvel? Uh, no, Stanley did have a job writing obituaries for a news agency at one point where you'd write the obituaries before people died. Well, that's a fairly common thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They accept that the Guardian obituary column now, the guy that wrote the obituaries died several years ago. So they have to, at the end of the obituary, point out that the guy that wrote it died about five, six years ago. But the bit at the end shouldn't be, oh, by the way, the person who wrote this died mm-hmm. five years mm-hmm. ago. So Stanley could write his own if he wanted to. Another weird job Stanley had was he used to write training films for the army. And he was a unit of eight people who did it, which also included Charles Adams, as in the Adams family, Frank Capra, the movie director, and Theodore Geisel. I'm sure you know the name of. Yeah. Is he okay, Stanley? I think so. I think his wife died a few years ago and they'd been married for decades Mm -hmm. and decades and decades. I know he went to Comic-Con last year and seemed chipper and happy. There's a financial problem. There's been a lot of things recently about whether he's been taken advantage of by... The group of people around him, and he seems to be going back and forth between two sets of people that appear to be kind of fighting over his legacy. And amongst other things, one of the things they're doing is selling ink with his tiny pot of his blood in one mm-hmm. of those two groups. There's weird stuff going on. Yeah. Can we re-record the song "Smooth Criminal" to ask Stanley if he's okay? Stanley, are you okay? Are you <laughs> okay? Do you know where that comes from? The Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? Michael Jackson went on a CPR course. You know those dolls that they do the CPR on. Yeah. <laughs> This is genuinely true. <laughs> the, the, those dolls are called Annie dolls. And when you pump the chest, you pump the chest, you go, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? And he thought, that's a good lyric. And he put that in Smooth Criminal. Fuck off, John. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you, you, can, you can Google that. that is, Unfortunately, that is, John is correct. I can make a ringtone of that for you if you like, John. Well, me doing Annie, are you okay? No, first thing you're correct. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Just edit it in after everything I say. Can I do another one just in case you need it? John is always wrong. John is always wrong. Oh, Especially sure. about Australia, <laughs> which is a lovely place with lovely people. I, I'm not saying it's not. I mean, I've got friends who live there. I'm just saying you wouldn't miss you, it, would you? Oh, you'd miss it, but you good, wouldn't miss not it. Not good friends, obviously. You wouldn't miss it as much as, you, you know, know if, if America right? went, you'd be, if, if I said to you, I've got a button, Australia goes or America goes. America, definitely. <laughs> Sorry, America. I'll get rid of America as well. <laughs> At the moment. Mm-hmm. Like the landmass or all the people within it as well? Everything. The whole lot goes. Is anyone else getting this uh, Dr. Evil vibe <laughs> from John? <laughs> Do you remember when he's like talking about blowing up the moon and the fake president of the USA at the time considers making the deal? Because he's like, would you miss it? Would you miss mm-hmm. it? Well, I was watching Infinity War again this morning. I was thinking, well, you could negotiate with Thanos, like take Australia and maybe bits of Latin America. <laughs> Which bits? <laughs> 
Well, Cuba's not. Well, it's more Central America, isn't Central it? America. Yeah. Buenos Aires. Argentina. Argentina can go, yeah. Very good steak there, though. Thanos likes steak. Mm. Raising the steaks. That was our guest star, Thanos. (laughs) How are you, Thanos? I'm good. (laughs) I got the infinity stones. Are you you been to Jamaica, Thanos? (laughs) Yes, I've been on holiday. Is it Yorkshire, Jamaica? (laughs) That's right. It's recommendations time, so we're going to talk about some stuff that we've been watching or listening to recently. Dan, what have you been up to? I am going to tentatively recommend Matt Groening's Disenchantment, which has started streaming on Netflix. I'm about halfway through the series at the moment, which all launched in the middle of August, and it's quite good. I'd definitely say persevere with it beyond the first episode, which I think is maybe the weakest of those I've seen so far. But if like me, you're a little bit tired of grown-up animation, meaning just the craziest, most cynical, most over-the-top violent stuff possible. It's quite a nice antidote to that. It feels tonally quite similar to Futurama. There is a larger overarching set of stories, but there are enough standalone adventures with the characters to enjoy it, with loads of great background references and jokes as well. The three main characters are Princess Tiabini, her personal demon, Lucy, and an elf who's been kicked out of the kingdom of the elves called Elfo. And they're three very different characters who kind of spur each other on to get into trouble. It's just a nice, comfortable animated watch. A little bit like when you maybe turn on the TV and there's an episode of Futurama, you can just watch it and enjoy it. It might not be the best thing you ever watch, but it's still really good fun. It's still finding its feet a little bit, A second series will grow a lot more confident and capable, but there's enough in there that's worth watching. There's another half of this series on its way, isn't there? And that's good. I mean, the only problem I really have with it is because it's a medieval high fantasy parody, it's got quite a lackadaisical attitude to death in that loads of background characters can just get killed and chopped up by Vikings or something like that. And the main characters don't really care, which sometimes feels a little off when they're supposed to be the likable ones you relate to. Never watch Game of Thrones, Dan. Well, I know, but that, that's the thing. It's kind of trying to do that Game of Thronesy, everybody dies all the time, mm. medieval thing, and it doesn't quite fit in with the more light-hearted tone that they're trying to do the rest of the time. Whereas with Game of Thrones, everybody's a bastard. So it's uh, Matt Groening. Is it, he's very hands-on with this, isn't he, in a way that he hasn't been with The Simpsons for a long time? Yeah, he's very much featured in the credits, along with David X. Cohen, who was his co-exec producer on Futurama. Quite a few of the voice cast from Futurama have moved over to it as well. It just feels a lot closer to the later Matt Groening stuff than The Simpsons. Uh, I have a very reluctant recommendation, (laughs) (laughs) but I do recommend you watch it. I've just watched Hereditary, Mm -hmm. the horror film that's being lauded as the most terrifying thing since The Exorcist. It stars Tony Collette and Gabriel Burns in it as well. It's set around a family whose grandmother dies and they start to uncover secrets about her past and the truth about their family. That starts the whole sort of family to unravel and fall apart. It's incredibly atmospheric. It's, what's the director's name again? Ari Aster. It's his first uh, debut feature and he really does reinvent some of the classic horror tropes. It's a genuinely spooky film as well. There's some amazing tension set up. But (laughs) 
It's essentially a cross between Wicker Man and a shit sandwich. <laughs> uh, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. You get to the end of the film, you go, what? I've just spent three hours watching this, balls. That's the end of my... Re- re- no, it's not. <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense at all. And people say you have to watch it again and again to get all of the references. But I don't want to watch a film again. I want to get it first time, please. It descends into a, a pointless jigsaw of clues that aren't really clues as to what's really going on when it starts to get all occulty and demonish. And they actually kill off, spoiler alert, the best character in it quite early on, the one that you're invested in and actually believe in. And after that, the whole film just falls apart. I just still recommend you watch it because it is going to be a classic, but it is a classic shit. <laughs> One of those classic dumps you have after a really long night <laughs> the next morning. Yeah, but even that can be quite satisfying though, can't it? Yes, it can be, yeah. <laughs> but at least you know there's an end to it, but this film doesn't have an end. It Not, just always. Sort of, Not always. It is. <laughs> the film just stops. And the uh, mother of the family, uh, she's a, a, like a fine art, conceptual artist, and she spends her days making little box models of events from her lives uh, with uh, meticulous detail. At any point, does it all say, Ali, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it actually does. I think Gable Burns says that at some point. It is, it's a generally uh, spooky, unnerving film, but ultimately it just doesn't make any sense at all. I think it's got a, quite a high critic score, but the user Huge. score isn't so yeah. much. Critics yeah. absolutely love it. They absolutely adore it. And I, can, I, can, I can see why, because it really does tread some interesting new ground. But as a, an emotional roller coaster, that yeah. you're all over the place. If you see those two widely different scores, which one do you give more credit to? Would you prefer to see one with a high audience score or one with a high credit score? Uh, some, score. <laughs> experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes with a particularly low or high audience score, you've kind of got to take it with a pinch of salt because you never know what the agenda might be behind it. The Last Jedi being an example of that, the audience score is likely to be much, much lower because of that very small base of toxic fandom that are deliberately bringing it down as much as possible. There was a film a year or two ago with Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale called The Promise, mm. which is about the Armenian genocide, which the country of Turkey officially no longer deny it ever happened, but many of the people still do deny that the genocide took place. And they downvoted this film well before it ever came out to take it down the IMDb ratings to try and tank the film before it was ever released because it was depicting this historical event that they don't believe happened. Mm -hmm. I think the general critical reception to that film was that it wasn't that great anyway. It was trying to be a sweeping epic and wasn't quite epic enough. It was up its own ass. There you go. Mm. But it might not have been necessarily as bad as the audience rating would be led to believe because of that political undertone. So mm. I'd probably go with a critic score over an audience score just because you never quite know what the agenda is. DC and Marvel being another one. Mm. Um, DC fanboys upping Justice League because they want it to be better than Marvel. You can't even trust the Oscars these days, can you? I mean, La La Land. Yeah. I rest my case. <laughs> didn't win, though. It won Almost a lot did. Of Oscars, though, <laughs> yeah. didn't it? Well, they're, making a, they're making a most popular film Oscar now, aren't they? In addition mm. to Best Picture, and there's, what is it, Best Popular Picture? Yeah. The, let's give Black Panther this one so we don't have to give it a proper award. Award. Yeah. yeah. That flop, John, remember? <laughs> I don't remember. I have a recommendation. I think we should be eliminated. <laughs> not, not from life, the podcast. <laughs> I should be. <laughs> yeah. For meanness to Australia. Just in case. Yeah. Nobody will miss him, will they? <laughs> My recommendation is going to be a controversial one, I think, particularly with Peter and Ian. I'm going to recommend The Meg, but I'm going to go one step further, and I'm going to recommend (laughs) The Meg in 4DX, (laughs) which was a ridiculous amount of fun. 
if you want to see Jason Statham fighting a giant shark, this is the film for you. It's basically a sci-fi film of the week, given a $150 million budget and Jason Statham. <laughs> Come on, shark, you slag. <laughs> does Louise make you do that? She does, yes. That's the only voice I'm allowed to use. Not in bed, just generally. It's very odd in Tesco's. I'd like some ham, please. I'm Jason Statham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the thing with the film is it, it's fun, but it's not as fun and silly as it should be. I think it needed to embrace its own ridiculousness more. Was it trying to be serious? As serious as a film that involves like a little shih tzu dog paddling away from a shark as quickly as it can. <laughs> oh, please tell me it survived. <laughs> You'll have to watch the film to see. I'm not going to. But sort of in a way that Piranha 3D was just ridiculous and fun and knew how stupid the premise was. This kind of goes halfway towards that, but still wants to have some level of realism. There's a bit near the end where the shark goes towards a beach which is full of hundreds of people. And you expect, okay, I'm going to get 20 minutes of exciting chomping action, which you don't really get because then they lure him away to where there's nobody. So it never really hits that level of over-the-top fun cartoonishness that I was expecting. But it's a, it's a solid film. It's the second best Jaws film, which I think is really all you can aim for. And what did the 4DX add to it? If you've ever been to Disney World or somewhere similar where you have these 4D motion rides, it's similar to that, but throughout the entire film. So Disclaimer to audience, if you go on one of these rides, don't go on with John. We know what happens on Star Tours. <laughs> what goes on Star Tours stays on Star Tours. And the 4DX is basically a movie with added torture. <laughs> yes, your seat moves left, right, up, down, shakes and vibrates, gives you nice little back massages, bits that poke out at the back. <laughs> Air blasts you in the face. Um, you get Jason Statham salty water spraying in your face <laughs> several times throughout the film. There's smoke, there's lights throughout the cinema at the side, so flashing lights in sync with the film. And if it's a film that you would want to pay any attention to or enjoy as a work of art, then 4DX will just completely ruin your enjoyment of the film because it's like a funfair ride rather than a film. But where it's the Meg and all that is happening is Jason Statham's punching a shark. I'm going to go alone. I'm going to go up to it. I'm too small for it to even notice me. And so you try and harpoon it in the fucking eye, you twat. Jason Statham, that's what that was, in case you were wondering, not Danny LaRue. <laughs> He's not in the film. But for a film that is essentially attempting to be a funfair amusement park ride in and of itself, 4DX is the perfect match. And I, I had a lot of fun, you know, when the shark jumps in the water and the water sprays over you, when the shark bites down and your chair jerks, it, it does add to it. I'd been drinking in the pub with Ian all afternoon before I went there. So I'd had five pints of lager, I think, oh, God. <laughs> which may have added to the experience. <laughs> the 4DX, it feels like, basically, you're sitting on the lap of someone who's having an epileptic fit. <laughs> yeah, but normally you've got to pay 50 quid to do that. Do, yeah. Yeah. I've had epileptic fits at the cinema before. Have you you, you mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Was it sitting on your lap? <laughs> <laughs> I should, should have just, uh, yeah, started marketing this. Yes. It's a far cheaper option. What film triggered this off? Is it Avatar? I think Avatar. Avatar, yeah. Mm. yeah. Is this why you don't do 3D? Yeah, or yeah. IMAX. Captain America Civil War, I just passed out for half the film, which I realised only after going to see it again and realising that I, I didn't realise that Aunt May was in this. <laughs> That's because we went to the midnight screening, though. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that was more tiredness than... Mm, I think I passed out because I just remember the kind of the dots sort of just... Oh, yeah. And yeah. then feeling a bit clammy. I'm still not sure what happened to Forrest Whitaker in Rogue One. The same thing happened to me. I think I'm, I drifted off at a key moment. Lies! Deceptions! Is that Danny LaRue again? That's Danny LaRue. I saw Guerrero. <laughs> Hazel, I thought you were quite interested in seeing the Meg. Have you been put off by things you've heard since? No, I just don't take John's recommendations seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I, will, I will go and see it. I think I've overcome my fear of sharks. It's been enough time since seeing Jaws. I think I can go again. John, if you could set a giant shark on the borders of one nation on Earth, which would it be? You wouldn't miss California, would you? <laughs> Our highest listener proportion. <laughs> Actually, yeah, we have a lot. Of, we have a lot of listeners in San Francisco and which San Jose. I am visiting San Francisco in a couple of weeks, so I will uh, apologise. I will apologise. Under the Golden Gate Bridge is the highest concentration of great whale sharks in November. I thought you were going to say podcast listeners. <laughs> in November. Yeah. Why in November? Why do they get them in November? Why not? Isn't this the same Golden Gate Bridge that people jump off? So it's not the sharks are not just waiting underneath for them like they know <laughs> they've learned over the years they'll, they'll so they're going to get, get fed yeah. <laughs> that's how I'd like to go yeah being eaten by a shark would be cool you'd have a story to, well you wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah but what if it wasn't a fatal bite what if they just got like a an arm what if they've got an ankle <laughs> me and Chris walking around in circles together <laughs> I'd only have use for one of you <laughs> <laughs> I might bring the tone up slightly, if I may. <laughs> I went to see Black Kingsman yesterday, and um, Klansman. Can I say Kingsman? Mm-hmm. Is that the Black Spotted remake of that Matthew um... <laughs> Colin Firth thing? Yeah. Yes, I went to see Black Klansman yesterday, and I'm still quite profoundly affected by it. I'll keep it very spoiler-free. It's written and directed by Spike Lee, and it stars Denzel Washington's son as uh, the main character, Ron Stallworth, whose novel this is based on, is based on a sort of true piece of history. Ron Stallworth was a undercover police detective, the first black detective in Colorado Springs. And he infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan by talking on the telephone. And Adam Driver's character would go along and be the, the white person infiltrating the gang. And it is probably the most important film over the last couple of years. It's, there's a lot of things in this film. It does have its comedic elements, particularly when he's on the phone to David Duke and David Duke gets the treatment. He really comes across as a buffoon. Which he is. Yes. That's the real character, isn't it? Yes. David Duke. David Duke, yeah. the uh, yeah. former Grand Wizard of the KKK. It's kind of a call to action film. There's something, I won't spoil it, but there's something that Spike Lee includes at the end, which is kind of like, it makes you think how far we've come and how far we actually haven't come over the past 40 years. So it's a very, very strongly opinionated film. Very, very moving. It makes you very angry as well at the depths of evils that human beings can go to and can do to one another. It's just, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of quite profoundly affected by it. It's such an important film to watch. Mm. We saw it a few nights ago and had the same feeling. It's got a really adept balancing of tone. Mm-hmm. There are comic bits and there is a lot of humour in it. But at the same time, you'll just get gut punched with some of the horrific things that the people in the clan yeah. believe. And the fact that you know there are still people like that yeah. today. Mm. And 
to deal with sort of that level of seriousness, but still manage to return the film to being light and keeping the story going as mm-hmm. well, because it's not just political and mm-hmm. activist. It's a really good undercover detective story. Yeah. Literally undercover. At one point, although although it has to be said, for the most part, when Adam Driver's character goes to goes to these meetings, they don't robe up. It's mostly them all sitting in in a living room, Mm. drinking beer and discussing how much they hate people. Yeah, Yeah, it's a very good undercover detective story. You worry that they're going to get found out and what's going to happen to them Mm -hmm. when they get found out, because there would be terrible consequences. If anybody discovered not only Ron Stallworth, but Adam Driver's character Flip has got Jewish heritage yeah. as well, mm. which leads to one particularly tense bit with yeah. one member of yeah. the gang. Adam Driver is terrific. Obviously, he's Kylo Ren, but here you really get to see his acting chops and he gets involved with the case because it's a job, but you see the effect that it starts to have on him because of his Jewish heritage. And when he starts talking to these clan members, yeah, he do, he does an, an incredible yeah. job. And um, even without of the, the main investigative plot, you've got the idea of Stallworth being the first black member of the police department having to deal with institutionalised racism within mm-hmm. the police department. Yeah. It's not a spoiler to say the first job they send him on undercover is a speech by a black rights activist. And they want to try and catch out the people in that audience as inciting violence. Mm-hmm. The fact that Stallworth's able to turn it around during the course of the film is very, very impressive. Do you think the advertising is slightly misleading? They seem to very much play up the comedy uh, elements of it. And the, it's all right. It's a big because, part of the yeah. film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, the tone in comparison means that the, the heavier hits mm-hmm. hit you all the more harder for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, you know, kind of a, a serious tone throughout. But there are several moments where you just go, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then it goes up in a, a notch. Yeah. So. And the ending particularly. But I think if it had been marketed as a serious polemic mm. film, it wouldn't have had the audience mm-hmm. yeah. that it would get. It would have felt preachy. Presented more yeah. lighthearted. You're probably yeah. going to get more people in. And if you can affect more people by presenting it as a comedy and then hitting them with yeah. the truth. It's been its biggest hit for a long, long mm. time, hasn't it? It's big, mm. biggest commercial success. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the real events took place in 1979, but they have brought it earlier. So this film takes place in the very early 70s for two reasons. They wanted to reference the fact that Richard Nixon was being campaigned to be re-elected, and apparently the Ku Klux Klan were heavily invested in that campaign. There's no comparisons to today whatsoever, then. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, they also wanted to reference several black exploitation films as well. Yeah, but it's actually quite funny because the, the uh, opening is um, led by what's his name, Alec Baldwin, who obviously on Saturday Night Live plays a very good Trump character. And this one is almost the same, but just a bit more blatant. Yeah. <laughs> I did read that Topher Grace, who plays David Duke, even though he comes across as such a ridiculous character, he became so depressed at playing someone so awful. To distract himself, he took all three Hobbit movies and made it into a two-hour version. That's how he distracted himself, which I quite like to see, actually. Yeah. Um, all kind of, yeah, nine hours distilled into two hours. That'd be quite good to see. I all it needed to be. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, please, uh, please go and see Black Klansman. It's amazing. So what's your recommendation, Peter? Mine is a little lighter than that. Uh, it's Ant-Man and the Wasp, which mm. I went to see last week. 
it's quite a quiet period for Marvel movies at the moment because obviously we had the huge events of Infinity War. And then there's really only two movies coming out between that and its follow-up. And obviously part of the problem is what do you do with the characters when Mm -hmm. all the stuff with Thanos is going on? How do you make them intersect? What they've done is it starts with Scott Lang under house arrest after violating the Sokovia Accords. This is the end of um, civil... Captain America's civil war. He's locked up at the end of civil war, Mm -hmm. isn't he? Yes. So he's locked up for two years and has to wear an ankle bracelet so he can't leave the house. Can you not just shrink and drop the ankle bracelet? Mm. Well, no, because they also made him destroy his ant suit. Oh, isn't he a petty thief in the first one? He is, yes. His character's changed and Mm -hmm. he's now much more a sort of superhero type. But here he's just going nuts because he's been stuck in the house for two years. Right. It's only three or four days until the two years is up. But he sees a vision of Hank Pym's wife, who's stuck in the quantum zone, which is this strange... Yeah. This strange, otherworldly place he visited in the first film. And somehow the two are connected and she's kind of sending messages through him. In fact, there's a weird bit later on where she talks through him literally and he's talking to Hank Pym and uh, Hope Van Dyne as her, which is weird and slightly disturbing. But it So he's work. talking to Paul Rudd thinking he's talking to Michelle Pfeiffer. Paul Rudd is talking from the character of position of Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, yeah. To Michael Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. To her husband and daughter. Mm, I mean, we've all had drunken nights where you've gone to bed with Michelle Pfeiffer and you've woken up with Paul Rudd. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still, it's it's a stranger. (laughs) Hank Pym thinks he might be able to help him and basically they spring him from house arrest by shrinking him down and sticking the ankle bracelet on a huge ant which then just wanders around the house entertaining itself while Paul runs away. Since the first film, they've changed the technology around a bit. So instead of it only being the suits that can shrink and enlarge, they can now shrink and enlarge other objects like the cars they drive around in. So you have a car chase where they can expand and shrink the cars while they're driving them. They have a lab in a building and they can shrink the entire building down to a suitcase size and wheel it around with a little handle. Mm. Yeah, that's a nice shot in the trailer. Yeah. I like that. And that's maybe one of my problems with the film. You know, it's good, enjoyable, lightweight fun. But to a large extent, they showed all the best bits in the trailer, which I know is often what people say, but you will think, well, that's good, but I've seen it. That's good, but I've seen it. And I don't normally get that with films, but in this case, they show so much of the extended car chase scene in the trailer and how the shrinking and expanding works that it just, for me, ruins the film a bit because there's not so much new in the film. I mean, there's quite a bit of repetition of gags from the first film as well. So overall, I would say it's fun. It's not essential. Mm. It's entertaining yeah. popcorn stuff. I always enjoy Paul Rudd, mm-hmm. like, whatever yeah, he does. Me too, yeah. yeah. I think he's good. What was the team movie he was in? Is it Clueless? Clueless, yeah, is in that, playing the uh, stepbrother who boinks Alicia Stilverson. Yeah. Have you seen the film, which I believe is on Netflix, called They Came Together, which is Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler from Parks and Rec? Nope. No. Um, it's, it's good fun. It's very much... A spoof of a romantic comedy. It's not a great film by any means, but it's 90 minutes on Netflix. I laughed. <laughs> well, at least once. Uh, more than once. <laughs> I mean, Ant-Man and the Wasp, I think it was always going to be minor Marvel, wasn't it? It's kind of a... Yeah, it's a, ironic that it's a small movie <laughs> compared to that. It's very yeah. much a reset after Infinity War. So overall, yeah, it's good fun. There's one quite nice bit where the suit goes wrong and he ends up about half normal size, supposed to be teeny tiny mm-hmm. or big. Yeah, so like, that in a clip. That's quite good. Like Baby Batman. Yes, just like Baby Batman. <laughs> yeah. He's like riding in a car with Evangeline Lilly and Michael Douglas. And uh, yeah, he has to kind of climb up. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
How many giant ants pretending to be a housebound Paul Rudd out of 10 would you give it? <laughs> I would give it seven and a half. Seven and a half. Yeah. You chop an ant in half, you, you fucking monster. And again on the trailer. So you sit there waiting for the end and, you know, it has like a mid credit sequence. And then you wait for the end credit sequence. And it's something that was in the trailer. It's the ant playing the drums. Mm-hmm. And not really any longer than you saw in the trailer. And you just think, why do that? The mid-credit trailer I, I have been spoiled on. Um, so I, I know what happens. So do you... No, I don't want to hear. Yep, yeah, okay. <laughs> so is the mate, most of it set before Infinity War then? Let's say at the same time. Mm-hmm. Whereas Captain Marvel's going to be in the past. It's yeah. in the 90s, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't know what Spider-Man Homecoming is going to be yet. The Spider-Man oh, is Homecoming that also too. within the same... Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's coming after. Mm. Looking back at it, it still seems weird that Black Panther was so close to the release of Infinity mm-hmm. War. It does seem very mm-hmm. odd to have a month apart. It's all right. At least nobody made the mistake of saying it was going to be a complete <laughs> utter. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. But if they did, we we wouldn't yeah. we wouldn't keep reminding them. I mean, if you were going to get rid of one Marvel film and not miss that. <laughs> Is there anyone you haven't offended during this podcast? Not yet, no. (laughs) There are still many people. All right, it's now time for The Born Identity. So in this segment, each of us nerds are talking about a movie from our birth year. And it's my turn this time. I was born in 1985. Ah, Youngster. (laughs) Got a few options. Rambo and Back to the Future are probably the ones that I was going to talk about, but we've talked about Back to the Future quite a lot. But I think my favourite film from that year is actually Rocky IV. Hey! Yay. <laughs> it's the film that I've seen the most out of this entire Rocky series. It's just something that you go, oh, Rocky IV, yeah, let's put mm-hmm. that on. Uh, something nostalgic about it because there's so many fantastic moments in it. Today, the Soviet Union has officially entered professional boxing. <laughs> This is not just an exhibition fight, but this is us against them. He would like to compete against anyone who's qualified. Drago is the most perfectly trained athlete ever. Whatever he hits, he'll be strong. So just to kind of outlay the plot for anyone who hasn't seen it in a while, because I assume everyone's seen it the Soviet Union as it was at the time you have a boxer called Ivan Drago who decides to make an entrance into professional boxing. He actually wants to take on Rocky first of all but his best friend Apollo Creed decides to fight against him instead and is fatally wounded during that fight. So Rocky decides to go to the Soviet Union to avenge his best friend's death and uh, defend the honour of his country it turns out. So it's the highest grossing film of the entire Rocky series. And it's actually the highest grossing sports movie for 24 years until The Blind Side came out. Mm. But it only has a 39% positive score on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. So it's quite critically mauled. I think it won about five Razzies and it got nominated for about 10, including all the big ones. But for me, it's just an over the top movie that just ticks all the boxes. One of the best moments is the entrance of Apollo when he's coming down to James Brown living in America and he's in his, you know, American flag shorts and everything. And he's not taking the match seriously. He kind of lands a few jabs at him ineffectively. And then... It's supposed to be an exhibition match, isn't it? Yeah, not so serious. And then you kind of start seeing Drago's retaliations and the effect that they're starting to have. And they're 
knocking, you know, seven shits out of each other. It's pretty incredible. And the moment that he dies, surrounded by his crying family, and uh, you see the juxtaposition of that uh, with the, the cold heart stone of Ivan Drago saying, off you go, John. If he <laughs> dies, he dies. <laughs> He's got no sense of remorse whatsoever. So it's kind of... <laughs> Does this make you anticipate... Creed 2, where the son of Apollo Creed is oh, going I'm, against the son of Drago. Yes, yeah. I can't wait for that. i for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that image. <laughs> yes. The film is full of juxtapositions. So when Rocky does go back to fight Drago in the Soviet Union, Drago is shown using all this high-tech equipment and all <laughs> yeah. the steroids and yeah. all that kind of stuff, whereas Rocky's like dragging trees and stuff that's got like poorly on top of them. And this is in one of the film's 15 montages. Oh, best, best, best montage in this in Rocky Four. I love how you actually get like one final montage which contains within it... All mm. the other montages that were within the film. It's mm. like this a, is the one where Rocky ends the Cold War, though, so it's yeah, it's a big it deserves, occasion. It deserves a montage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's... a talking robot after causing it through his actions in Rambo Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rambo Three, dedicated to the valiant freedom fighters of Afghanistan. <laughs> his victory speech at the end is. I think if you watched it now, you'd go, "What were they thinking?" But I guess from a contemporary point of view, you might kind of go, "Yeah, okay, fair enough." So in the final match, obviously it's in Russia and all the crowd are against Rocky, but they appear to start to grow less disdain for him as it shows that he's quite a good fighter and he kind of gives as good as he gets. He compares the animosity between the US and the Soviets and says that seeing him and Drago fight was better than 20 million, which alludes to a possible war between the US and uh, the Soviet Union. And he kind of says, if I can change... Anybody can change. And then that's the moment when the general secretary uh, stands up and starts applauding. There's no suggestion that Ivan Drago's changed, though, is there? He's no. a bit one-sided. <laughs> I did read that Dolph Lundgren actually wounded Stallone to the point where mm. he had to spend some time in intensive care. So all of the fights between them are completely genuine. He had a punch into Sloane's chest, which slammed against his breastbone, which caused the heart to swell. So he suffered from laboured breathing and blood pressure over 200. So he was flown from the set in Canada to a, a medical centre and was forced into intensive care for eight days. <laughs> but he gave the same treatment to Carl Weathers and he did not take it like Stallone did <laughs> and uh, threatened to walk off the set and call his agent. And he said, I'm not coming back because this guy's really punching me. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot to kind of turn him around. I think I remember that Don Lundgren was suggested as Stallone for Rambo 3, mm-hmm. but they thought, oh, it'd be much better as a new opponent for mm-hmm. Rocky, which he obviously became in this movie. Yeah. Going back to the training montages, I did read that for the 2012 Olympics, uh, Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte both said that the training montages that Rocky uses inspired them for their own training for their swimming. Did they win? Uh, certainly Michael Phelps won because he won everything but I'm not sure about Ryan Lochte he's more fond of um, faking burglaries <laughs> the weird thing is with, with the Rocky films when you think of a Rocky film you really only think of Rocky 3 or Rocky 4 mm. the thought of a Rocky film is this really over the top bombastic ridiculous yeah. Eye of the Tiger Eye of the Tiger mm. and massive fights and all and that's really only the third and fourth one that I like that cause that's, yeah. that's true with First Blood into Rambo yeah, as well that's right yeah, yeah. But the, fir- the first two are quite restrained. Mm. And then by the time you get to Rocky V was the gritty Rocky. Mm. 
I worked on a video game based on the Rocky movies, and we were really not sure whether to even bother with Rocky Five because we knew how unpopular that was. Mm-hmm. We did end up with him as a character in the end, mm-hmm. but uh, is it Tommy Mottola? Tommy Gunn. Tommy Morrison's the actual guy because the guy who played him is a real boxer mm-hmm. or was. Yeah. I confess I haven't seen Rocky Five Don't. or Rocky One. Oh, I've mm. seen two, three, four, and six, mm-hmm. but not one for <laughs> some reason. Weird. Stallone has said himself that because of the financial and uh, following of Rocky Four, he was going to continue in that vein with Ivan Drago again. And it was going to be on his kind of post-boxing life with like Rocky Balboa's story running in parallel with Ivan Drago's. But he said that the damage that both boxers had sustained during that fight meant that they were both incapable of reason so he decided to make Rocky 5 all about the dangers of boxing instead mm. rather Which than is just what you really want to see in a Rocky film a lecture <laughs> about the dangers of boxing <laughs> and a perfunctory street fight at the end of mm. a film that is mainly Rocky arguing with his teenage son as I recall it also has the ghost of Mickey which is a weird thing in Rocky mm. 5 so you were talking about sci-fi elements that take you out of films Ghosts in Rocky? Well, I assume it's Sylvester Stallone having a waking dream. I don't believe the penguin actually appears behind him. Hey, Rocky, yes, Rocky's in the spine, Rocky. It's Jason Statham in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your Rocky ranking, Hazel? Um, my Rocky, ra- <laughs> Rocky ranking. Say that very carefully. <laughs> Rocky ranking. Um, in, in what order yeah. would you rank the films of the Rocky <laughs> franchise? In what order would you rank Rocky? <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm what, what position would I put Rocky in? <laughs> um, I would say four one. What kind of tree is he? Oh my god, is <laughs> a tree that I would drag along behind me <laughs> in through the, through the snow covered forests. Yes. <laughs> I would say four one two six three five. Have I missed any? Creed. Oh. Do we count Creed as a Rocky film? Yeah. I think we do, yeah. Okay, in that case, four, one, two, Creed, six, five. I can't remember. Yeah, as I said, the film didn't go critically down well. I think it was Ian Nathan from Empire that gave it two stars and called it a cinematic turd. <laughs> it's weird that that was the case, because I think it's pretty much universally loved now, isn't it? Everybody yeah. really yeah. enjoys it. Yeah, he said it was the Rocky film where all credibility was lost. I just think it's a different film and mm-hmm. to, to, to what the first one was. And for me, it, it's one of those things that is, it's not a Black Klansman sort of talk about two nations or anything like that. It's just a popcorn movie mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed it. So how many punches to the best plate out of 10 would you give Rocky for? Oh, 10. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that the robot is a member of the Screen Actors Guild? <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten the robot. Yeah, it, it toured with James Brown in the 1980s. Really? It did, yeah. <laughs> but it was written into the movie after that very same robot was used to help Sylvester Sloan's autistic son. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. He also married Brigitte Nielsen as well, who's obviously a yes. big role in the film. Yes, yes. Uh, Drago's wife. There's a moment when uh, she calls the United States an antagonistic and violent government that is filled with threats of violence to her husband. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why they kind of had to leave the States and go back to the Soviet Union. And that's why they had to have had the fight there with Rocky. I'm pretty sure that Ivan Drago would have been killed by the Russian government at the height of the Cold War, you know. For for losing. For losing, yeah. 
Well, they don't kill off all their Olympic athletes that don't get medals. Have you heard of any of them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they just kill off all their them, journalists. Some but... of them come back four years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes as a man. But... <laughs> so how many punches to the sternum out of ten would you give Rocky for? Eight and a half. Eight and a half. I'm going to give it nine. I think it loses a mark for the robot. But now that you know that the robot toured with James Brown and is a member of the SGA. Actually, yeah, I mean, just the the fact they stop it for five minutes to basically play a James Brown video in the middle where <laughs> Apollo Creed's going to... It can't be anything less than a 10 out of 10, can it? it? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the solidarity. <laughs> Just before we go, we have a, a public announcement from John. If anybody <laughs> was one of the early downloaders of the last episode of our podcast, Meat Loaf Impossible, you may have wondered why approximately three quarters of the way through, myself and Daniel Watkins began singing Paradise by the Dashboard Light for no discernible reason. There was, in fact, a discernible reason in that we accidentally uploaded a episode of the podcast with the middle 15 minutes missing. <laughs> meaning that everything thereafter was completely out of context and you will have failed to find the winner of Nerd of the Mastery Mind. As soon as we realised that error, we took Peter outside and beat him for 20 minutes (laughs) until he fixed the omission and uploaded a section with the middle bit inserted where it belonged. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) If, having listened to the podcast, you are desperate to know who won the Nerd of the Mastery Mind and why we were singing Meatloaf, please make sure you re-download the episode on your podcast player. Also, this will double our listener numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and we're desperate. And that's all we've got time for for this episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Remember to check us out on social media at Nerdfest UK. Facebook and Twitter is where we're mostly present. Um, get involved in our discussions on there. And also let us know if there's any future debate topics you'd like us to take on. But in the meantime, you have been listening to... Dan Watkins. Ian McLaughlin. Peter Johnson. Crocodile Dundee and a kangaroo. And I'm Hazel Burton. We'll see you next time. Bye. To the people of Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Canberra, and other Australian places, he doesn't mean it. Please give us a five-star review. Zero kid, stop away. Zero kid, zero kid, zero kid, stop away. Stop away. Zero kid, zero kid, zero kid, stop away.